Well, good morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Steve Atkins. I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest Church, and uh, I love meeting new people. So if I haven't met you yet, uh, I would consider it a really great favor you could do for me is catch me in the foyer and just sort of say, hey, I haven't met you yet, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, where you're from, and uh, that would be a real privilege for me to be able to do. Um, Have you ever had a DTR conversation? Does anyone know what a DTR conversation is? (laughs) Defining the relationship. Defining the relationship. Uh, I had a few of those. I had some in high school. I had a whole bunch of them in college. Um, A DTR conversation can happen between people who might be interested in each other romantically, or maybe they're dating and they're wondering about the next stage, uh, or maybe they've been in a very, very, very long engagement, and they feel they're, you know. So what the person who starts the DTR conversation, the defining the relationship conversation, might say stuff like this, we need to, yes, we need to talk where do you think this relationship is? Mm, yeah, where do you think this relationship is going? I just want us to be on the same page. And the person they're talking to, they might respond with something like this. They might say, I'm not ready to be in a serious relationship right now, perhaps. They might say that. It's not, <laughs> it's not you, it's me, it's me. Let's just be friends. Oh, it sounds like you guys have some experience with this. (laughs) Now, if you've had just been on the the defining relationship conversation and and you're the one who said, hey, where's this going? And they said, let's just be friends. You might have a third person come along to comfort you afterwards and say this to you. They'll say, don't be discouraged. There are plenty of in the sea, fish in the sea. That's right. You know, you might have cringed as we went through this because, mm, do I dare ask? How many of you were on the receiving end of any of those lines at some point in your life? How many of you will honestly confess that you delivered some of those lines? (laughs) I delivered some of those lines through the years. In fact, I delivered even worse line. Oh, my, I'm so embarrassed about this, but I'm going to share it. So I share my own sins with you so that you'll feel really good. You go, wham, I'm, I'm way better than Steve. It's awesome. So there was a girl who was interested in me, and she asked, you know, whether this could go further. And I told her this. I said, um, well, I don't think God wants me to be in a relationship right now. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a fine answer if it's true. But when she saw me a month later dating a different girl, she knew. Some of you don't like me now. Some of you are going to be in Superstore this afternoon looking for wings, and you're going to see a flavor called jerk chicken, and you're going to think of me. (laughs) Well, in a way, you could say the teaching series we're in right now is a defining the relationship series. We're having a DTR with God. Uh, The interesting thing, though, is that we don't sit down with God and define the relationship on our end. He defines what having a relationship with him is like. And um, we've been looking at some of the things that 
when Jesus calls people into relationship with him, he calls them to be his disciple. That's why we've called the seri- series, in a sort of cheeky way, we've called it Disciplable Me. Disciplable Me. Are we disciplable? And what are the, what are the signs that you're disciplable or, or that you're, or you're um, engaging in the process of, of, of formation that God wants to bring into your life? Jesus' call for us to be a disciple uh, was pretty stark. It wasn't like, uh, hey, you know, if you've got time, if, you, if you're into this, if you want to. He just simply said, come, follow me. And then he defined the relationship. He said, really shocking things. If you don't give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You cannot be my disciple. He even said things like, if you love your father and mother more than me, you cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus defines uh, the costs and the benefits of discipleship. Of course, there are many benefits. Peace with God, real freedom in our lives, a solid identity that cannot be taken away from us. Uh, He said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You really want to find life? You really want to experience life as God has meant it be for your life? The life that he's designed you for? He offers that to you. But he's called you to come and be his disciple. And disciples is a journey of formation, a journey of being changed more and more into uh, the image of Christ, to become more and more like Christ in your character and in your actions and even in your Uh, agenda and your mission in the world that you adopt the mission and agenda of Jesus. Dallas Willard, he, uh, he said it this way, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Let me read that again just so it sinks in. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. So, there's a daily surrender aspect to this. There's a, uh, you know, a saying again and again, I belong to you. The first week in the series, I, I challenged you at the end to do a simple practice, and that was every day to recite the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, there's a, there's a couple lines there that really are surrender lines. I mean, it's all, when you pray, it's all sort of surrender to God. But the lines, your kingdom come, your kingly reign in my life, Be a reality in my life. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So it's a life of of obedience. It's a life of recognizing uh, his authority in our lives and and, and following him. Last week we talked about one of the uh, traits of disciples. And we said that disciples gather. Uh, And and of course what we're doing now is that. We're gathering. Right? all, All across the globe. Everywhere the gospel went, it didn't just go to form single individuals who followed Jesus, it formed gatherings. It formed local churches. And our gatherings are meant to reinforce the gospel. I think uh, even just moments ago, Pastor Kurt did an excellent job of reinforcing the gospel as we celebrated communion, didn't he? Right? Just bring us back to the truths of our need for, we are sinners, we need a Savior, and yet the good news is God in his graciousness offers us his salvation. He offers to save us from the penalty of sin, to free us from the power of sin, and that the promise that one day we will be free of the presence of sin in our lives. It's an incredible, pro- all of those are incredible promises. And the gospel is good news. 
The good news is that no matter how broken your life has become, no matter how far from God you have strayed, he is willing to welcome you, forgive you, and make you his child. It's good news. The gospel is good news. You can be, you can have a clean slate with God. You can be right with him. Nothing in between you. Because Jesus took the penalty on himself for your sin. And receive the gift of, that God has for you. Receive the gift of salvation. Receive the gift of God's forgiveness. Receive the gift of God's leadership in your life. He stands ready to give it to each one of us. So, disciples gather to reinforce the gospel. Again, through communion. Through our baptisms we do that. When people make a profession of their faith in Christ through baptism. Uh, through our preaching. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, we proclaim Christ. That, uh, why? So we pr- may present each one mature in Christ. So we keep bringing our attention back to Jesus uh, through our gatherings so that people will uh, focus on who Christ is and what he's done and who he, ho- who he is making us to be. Um, one of my favorite parts of last week was uh, Lisa Hogg was here. She's one of our um, partners in missions across the globe. And she shared, shared the story that she called How She Became Normal, which I think is the greatest title. But her story was not a story of just that one person came along and discipled her or, or helped her become a follower of Jesus, but that it took a whole church. It took the gathering. It took, it took many people involved in her life helping her to, as she said, become normal, but uh, what I would say is to become a disciple of Jesus. And at the end of last week's service, I asked you to pray and be open to God prompting you about somebody that you'd like to see following Jesus more, someone that you could play a role in discipling, because part of being a disciple is discipling. Right? Jesus said he wanted his followers to make disciples. So that's the process. In fact, it's the process that God will use. You say, well, I'm not ready to disciple anyone. You're not, if you know anything about God, if you know any truth about God, and you know anything about the gospel, you have something to say. You're not really accountable for what you don't know yet. But you are accountable for what you do know, and you can share that, and it can play a role in helping people to follow Jesus. So, I asked you to consider how to do that. Uh, when we, were, we had a moment of prayer at the end of the service, and I was praying as well, and for me in that moment, my nine-year-old son came to mind as one of the ones that I want to have a greater hand in discipling. And what came to mind was uh, comics. When I was a kid, uh, my grandpa had a whole bunch of these little comic books that were like gospel comics. And I thought, yeah, I want my son to really understand the gospel well. And so part of my obedience to what I felt was a prompting from the Lord this week was I went online and ordered a bunch of those same little gospel comics that I read when I was a kid that had an impact on my life. And I ordered them, and then I'll be reading them with my nine-year-old son. Again, simple things like that are discipleship. Today I want to talk about a third aspect about being a disciple, and that's just that disciples group. Disciples group. We've got a handy statement on the wall. It says, connect small. Okay? This is part of our discipleship pathway here at Hillcrest. Connect small. When someone cares about your spiritual growth. So we, here at Hillcrest, we uh, encourage people to get into groups. 
Uh, there's lots of different groups. There's groups that will follow the teaching series through the year. We call them life groups. Uh, we're going to kick off in the fall a pretty uh, exciting teaching series called Daring Faith. And um, we would love for you to be in a group, be in discussion with people about what we're learning together and growing together. But it's a place where people care about how are you growing? How are you being discipled? How are you becoming more like Jesus? Where are you struggling? What are some of the hurts that are going on in your life? How can we pray for you? How can we encourage you? How can we spur you on to love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10 says? And we, we're eager to see people um, gather together for the purpose of discipleship. I want you to just, um, think about the Apostle Paul. He was sort of, uh, he wrote many of the books and many of the letters or the epistles in the New Testament and uh, has had a great impact on so many of us through the generations because of the writings that he left. And people often hold him up as sort of um, an example of a strong Christian leader who would go through anything in order to bring the gospel to other people. But if you, I think we tend to read the Bible through the lens of the culture we grew up in. And if you grew up in North America, you grew up in an individualistic culture. I don't think that's the culture it was written in. I think it was written in a communal culture. So we're having a wonderful experience here in Moose Jaw of those of us who've grown up uh, idealizing rugged individualism. That means I'm strong on my own. Are meeting people who are newcomers to Canada and they grew up in a different idea where it was like we are stronger together. And uh, as much as I think there's great, wonderful, good things about Canada that newcomers to Canada are experiencing, like the one that keeps coming to my mind is, I've never paid a bribe in my life. Do you know that that's not true in every country in the world? I've never had a police officer pull me over. No, I've had police officers pull me over. That I've had. But I've never had one pull me over and then ask for money in order to not give me a ticket. You, that's rare in many countries in the world. Right? So lots of great things to, about being a Canadian and lots of things I, I think that newcomers to Canada will, will love about Canada. I'm not sure that it's going to be easy for them when they encounter how individualistic we are. I had one uh, friend of mine came, came to Canada many years ago. He said, when I came to Canada, I was so excited that I would be invited into the homes of Canadians. I was so looking forward to that. And then I would meet Canadians, and they would be really friendly and polite. And they would say uh, to me, hey, we should get together sometime. And then I would pull my phone out to book that appointment, and they didn't pull their phone out at all. They just walked away. And I was like, whoa. How are we supposed to get together if we don't book an appointment? So I had to explain to my dear friend from another country, we're just polite. We're just nice people. But we don't ever intend to have you into our home. Is that too pointed? But we know. We're probably going to get together in a restaurant. And we're probably not going to get together. I'm not saying that as an indictment of you. I'm saying that as an indictment of me. When I heard this person's story about their dream of being invited into a Canadian home, it broke my heart. And I also realized how hard it was for me to even follow through. How many times I've said, hey, yeah, let's, let's get together sometime. We can change. Ah. 
I love it. That's the voice of faith right there. We can change. Hey, we should change. We should change. And now we've got some partners to help us change. I think newcomers to Canada are going to, they're going to help us. They're going to help us be formed. And I think part of what they're going to help us be formed into is the image of Christ. It's good news. It's good news. I love that many of the people who are coming to Canada are believers. Uh, God has sent us gospel reinforcements. Are you praising God about that? I mean, you might re- watch the news and you hear something and you think, oh man, it's not good that people are coming to Canada. I think it's good news. Many of them are strong believers. And if we find ways to partner with them, I think together we can reach more people for Christ. But we'll probably have to change. Thanks for saying that. Listen to Paul. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is like at the end of his life, basically. Incredible pronouncement. Who wouldn't want to say that about their life? I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And sometimes we think, again, as individualists, that, you know, yeah, strong on your own. But Paul, when Paul fought the good fight of faith, which the fight of faith basically is fighting unbelief in your life, fighting against, uh, in a culture of unbelief, which sort of wants to drain away belief in God and, and, and following him. Paul didn't do it alone. I mean, Paul had his Barnabas, his Timothy, his Silas, his Mark, his Luke, his Aristarchus, his Epaphras. He didn't travel alone. He always traveled in teams. There was one time when he was forced to travel alone. He was forced out of Thessalonica. He was forced to flee to Athens by himself. And he left Silas and Timothy behind. And he was almost done in by the evil in Athens. And then he wrote in 1 Thessalonians, get Timothy here fast. So if we read into the text that Paul was strong on his own, that he fought this good fight on his own, we're deluded. He fought it together with others. That's the Apostle Paul. Listen to him in 2 Corinthians 7, 5. He says, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, and this is crucial, fears within. What was happening to Paul? Fear. I mean, fear and faith are... They hit into each other. If there's, a, if there's an opposite to faith in God, it's fear. And he's experiencing that. He's saying, that's where we were at. We were scrambling. We were on the run. We were, we were harassed at every turn. Conflict on the outside. But what was happening on the inside? We were afraid. But God. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How did he do that? He comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, and your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So God, who comforts the downcast, isn't that another great title for God? The one who comforts the downcast? He comforted Paul and his companions through sending Titus, 
But Titus himself had been comforted by the Corinthian believers, who Paul is writing to at this time. So the Corinthian believers comforted Titus. They encouraged him. They spurred him on. And then he went to Paul and his companions. And then he blessed them and encouraged them and, and helped those fears to dissipate and helped their joy to increase. Someone said that, the, you know, have you heard about the Midas touch? The Midas touch, you know, where it turns lead to gold? Someone said, this is the Titus touch, where it turns the dead to the bold. That's the power that we can have in community as we come together. That's the power of one another in our lives. Hebrews 10, I'll read it. I read it last week. I'll read it again. Even when I was reading it last week, I felt like, because I, I was talking about our greater gathering. But today I'm really talking about how we come together in smaller groups. Because in this greater gathering, it, it is a little bit more challenging to uh, spur each other on to good works. Let me read the verse first, and then I'll talk about it. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So, when I think of encouraging each other in this context, I think there is great encouragement that can happen here. I mean, we often encourage people to cross the floor, meet someone new, hear their story, get a little bit of, you know, listen to people. I think there's lots of great ministry that happens in our foyer every week. Some of you get vulnerable with someone else in the foyer, and that's awesome. Love that that happens, that, that ministry doesn't just happen here, but it happens out there as, as you have personal conversations. And even into the parking lot, especially in the summer, way into the parking lot, you guys are talking at your cars at the far end of the parking lot, and just good things are happening, and God is in the midst of that. But I think it's, it's harder to be transparent in, in a large context, and it's easier to do that in a smaller context. And transparency is needed to bring great encouragement, because we've got to get real first. We've got to be able to say, hey, I, I'm struggling, or, or this is difficult, or here's an area where there's a roadblock in my life. Would you pray with me to see that overcome? We need to group. Disciples, that's what they do. They group. Here's Paul in Philippians 2, 12 to 16. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed. Now, I just want to pick some things out of here that I think are about discipleship. As you have always obeyed. Discipleship is not just about um, knowledge. Right? It is about knowledge. Uh, imagine you've got two guys. There's Bill and Bob. Okay, Bill and Bob. Bill, he knows a lot about Christianity. I mean, he knows enough that he could probably teach a class on it. I mean, if you asked him to explain the Trinity and how it works, he'd probably do a great job of explaining that. That's quite a challenging thing to explain, actually. He'd do a great job. Bill would be a great job. But then you notice about Bill's life that it doesn't seem like all this knowledge has transferred into action in his life or it's changed his practices or even affected his character. Then you've got Bob. 
And Bob, he'd just say, man, I just, I just want to represent Jesus into the world. I just want to, you know, I'm a relational guy. That's who I am. I'm just all about relationships. And he's warm and he's, he's caring and, and he's, he's uh, you know, trying to impact people for Jesus. But, you know, he probably couldn't explain much about uh, the Bible. Or he probably, if you try to describe Jesus, he probably wouldn't describe it in a way that uh, people throughout history would even agree with. And so you got two guys they both need discipleship. I mean, Bill, he needs to go from, he's got great understanding, which is great. But he needs to put it into practice. He needs to help in how to live it out. He needs to be discipled in how to live out what he knows. And Bob, he's got a great heart, and there's a responsiveness to God, but he needs to be discipled in a way so he understands his faith. We all need to be discipled in both of these areas, greater understanding and greater obedience. And that's why in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, obedience is important to discipleship. In fact, it's great when you can come together in a group and you can say, um, what do you think God's prompting you to do? I feel like God's prompting me to do this. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm discouraged. I, I, I've got questions. Uh, and, and then you, you're gathering around the word or you're sharing the word with each other. Maybe stuff that you've read in the Bible, you, you can share in that moment. It really encourages someone. But also it's just that the power of the group to be able to say, I want to do these things. It's hard for me to do. Having the support of the group causes you you're more likely to obey. So as you've always obeyed, not, in my, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't read that wrong. It doesn't say continue to work for your salvation. You cannot work for your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot do enough good things so that God will finally accept you. Only, the only thing that the only perfect sacrifice that would, is acceptable to God was the, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf on the cross. So we're not trying to work for our salvation, but we're trying to work out the realities of our salvation. So if God has made you his own, now what? There's a whole lot of forming that he wants to do in our lives. There's a whole lot of our character that he wants to, he wants to mold and shape. There's a whole lot, light, a lot of our lifestyle that he wants to adapt and change. And so we're working out the reality of our salvation. It's like, I now belong to Christ. What does that mean? What do I do? What are the next steps? How do I grow? And we as we gather together around the word of God and, and, and are seeking to spur one another on to love and good deeds, we continue to work out the realities of what the gospel message has begun in us and won for us and wants to produce long-term in us. Right? It's, not just an, like, it's great when a person is saved from the penalty of their sin and they've been made God's son or daughter. 
But then how do you live out that reality? And that's where we need to be in the word of God. And, and again, Jesus, his focus in, in uh, Matthew 18, 20 is teach them what I taught you. He said to his disciples, you're going to go make disciples? Teach them, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. So they, they start living like Jesus. So work that out with fear and trembling. There might be some time where you're like, that's how you're experiencing it. But work it out and do it in a group. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is really encouraging. You say, man, I, I don't know if I have the willpower. I don't know if I, I can choose to do those things. You know, if you open yourselves up to the process of transformation that God wants to bring in your life, he will will and act in you. Incredible promise. He will change, he will change your stubborn will. He will, he will tenderize your rocky heart. He will start to move your stubborn feet. He will open your mouth to speak for him. So he's going to will and act to fulfill his good purpose in you. That's his promise, and you can, you can take that to the bank. And it's the kind of promise you should speak over each other in a group. If you just take a step of obedience with God, God's going to will He's going to will and he's going to act. He's going to, he's going to help you to do that. He's going, to, he's going to help you. 14 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's one we're probably all working on. <laughs> if you think you've arrived, just read that a few times and then you might feel convicted. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. God intends for you, as you become more like him, as you are a disciple, to stand out. That there be a marked difference. There, there be, there be uh, less and less things in your life that people could blame you for because there's less and less sin habits. There, there's slowly, there's a slow change, there's a change, well, it might be slower, quick, in your life in that area and greater purity in your life. So you can stand out as children without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. That's standing out. That's standing out. And then he says, hold firmly to the word of life. Again, the word is essential. So when you're discipling each other, it's, you've got to come around the word of God. Look, what is the, what's the, the fuel? Well, you're if you're going to fight the good fight of faith, if you're going to fight against unbelief in a culture of unbelief that wants to just sap that right out of you, the fuel is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you've got to come back to the promises of God, what he has said about himself, what he said about you, what he said about his plan for your life and his plan for, for the world and Come back to those things again and again and again. And you speak those things over each other as well. God has said he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Many more things. Hold firmly to the word of life. The fuel is the word of God. That's why when we have groups at this church, there might be groups that have a curriculum they use. They might be ones that they just are reading a 
parts in the Bible that they're studying. There might be different, or they're using videos or whatever. But at the core of it is we want all that to point back to the Word of God. Because it's the promises of God you've got, that you're going to be hanging on to in your moments of fear and unbelief. And so you've got to get those embedded pretty deep. And so you want to be with people who are around the Word of God. And we, we expect that out of all of our groups, whether they're a life group or a study group or any type of group, that at some point you're coming around the Word of God and that becomes formative in your life. Hold firmly to the Word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You know, you can say, hey, Paul had a good run. You know how Paul would say he had a good run? If you are discipled. If we are discipled. He's measuring his run by how he's helped other people run. And so sometimes we've had sort of a limited view of being a disciple. We've said, well, I want to be discipled. I want to become like Jesus. I'm good with all these things. And then we've, for, we've not measured it the way Paul is measuring it. Paul say, Paul's measure, saying, it's not just that I became a disciple of Christ. He says, the confidence I'm going to have in that day, the, the joy that I'm going to have that day, the, the thing I'm going to be most excited about in that day is that I helped other people in following Jesus. Because disciples disciple. And it's how you become a disciple. Is that you're passing on whatever you've gotten from God to others. You're opening up your lives. You're being more transparent. You're sharing and you're caring and you're praying for each other and you're, you're entering into the challenges of everyday life. You can't miss it in the New Testament. Romans 12. Let me read you a passage. It's great. It's just all about uh, togetherness. It's got great things in here. Just read uh, Romans 12, uh, 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervors serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. There's so much in here just about relationship, relationship, with relationship. There's so many one another, one another, one another's. And the New Testament is full of one another's. It sort of gives you an idea that the way he's meant for us to live is not to be rugged individualists being lone rangers on our own. By the way, even the lone ranger had Tonto. <laughs> We're meant to do this together. And that we will be stronger together. As we practice community, as we come together in groups, as we disciple one another. So I've got three little things I want to just share. I, I think a group can be three things. And I just want to, this will be the three things I share and then I'll, I'll finish. I think a group can be a pocket of resistance. A group can be a pocket of resistance. I was talking to my two oldest boys who are 18 and 21 and one of them's uh, at Eston College which their dorm accommodations are at Luther College which is on the U of R campus. And then my uh, 
My other son is going to SAS Polytech. And so my encouragement to them both was, find your own pocket of resistance. So for my son, who's going to be in the dorm with 24 other, at least 24 other, I, I don't know what the total, ta- but a whole bunch of other students who are Eston College students, but on the U of R campus, I said, find a few guys. Find a band of brothers. And, 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 be, and be strong together. And then I said to my other son, who's on the SAS Polytech campus, I said, you're, find your band of brothers where you can encourage each other in your faith and you can stay strong together. And why do you need to be a pocket of resistance on a, on a campus like this? Because there's stuff to resist. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. All of us need a pocket of resistance. If you have a phone in your pocket, you better also have a pocket of resistance. Because there is a, a culture of unbelief that wants to erode your faith in Christ. So you don't fight the good of faith. You don't fight the good fight of faith. You just slowly give up the fight of faith. I think the great example in Scripture is the story of Daniel. Daniel comes. He's captured. Uh, Jerusalem's been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. He's been captured. He and his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are some of the cream of the crop of intelligent young lads that Nebuchadnezzar steals away from Jerusalem to come to Nebuchadnezzar to be transformed, to be formed in the image of Babylon. They're in the University of Babylon. And everything about it Everything about their process they're going to do is going to be about stripping away their faithfulness to God and forming a new loyalty to other gods. Do you know that even the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those aren't their Jewish names? They were like Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah or something like that. They gave them new names that reflected Babylonian gods. How would you like to be taken from Canada, inserted into a new culture, and given a name and be named after an idol there? So they make this courageous stand at a certain point. They pick their battle, and the battle they pick is we're not going to eat all the... There's, there's foods that are being offered that sort of are against their faith, and they're not going to eat those foods, and they're going to ask instead to be able to give just a very simple diet of vegetables which surely wouldn't end up them being strong and healthy like the other guys, or that's what's thought, but they're going to trust God, and they're going to do it together. The thing in the story of Daniel and his three friends that hit me just recently is they stood together. They were a pocket of resistance. So the University of Babylon did not overcome them. It did not form them into the image that they were meant to be. They were able to stay faithful to God. And some of that was individual responsibility. But I believe a lot of that was the power of the group. The power of them coming together. And when things were at their dire and worst moments, they prayed together and sought God. And God delivered them again and again and again. So it's a pocket... Having people, a group that you gather with and you, you, you speak, uh, the, you read the word and you pray for each other, it will help your faith not to leak away or to become, or for you to be formed into the image of the culture. My niece, she, uh, she's at uh, one of the universities, she's at U of R, and she loves her classes. 
And she gets some really great instructors who are just brilliant. And she says, I'm learning. I'm, I'm loving math now. I didn't love it in high school. I love it now. She's, it's some, so many great things she's saying. She said, I have this one class, though, that I hate. So she described the class to me. And um, I don't know. I can't remember what the class was, the official title for the class is, but I have a new name for it. It's like, do you hold approved views? That's basically the class. So what the class, it seems like the class intention is to see what your views are coming into university, and let's fix that. Let's change that. Let's form you. And so she's just like Daniel. In the, with, she's, she's picking her battles. She says, there's lots of classes. I don't say anything. They're saying stuff that totally goes against my faith, and I, I hold my tongue, I hold my tongue. And then occasionally, I find the moment where I think I can speak clearly and I think I can speak with boldness, and I do. She goes, the first time I did that, it was like several classes in. She had five students catch her after class and say, thank you for saying that. But you know what she has? Every week she goes to a young adult group. And at that young adult group, she tells them about this class. And they just sit down and they dissect the lies in the class. They laugh about a lot of it. They pray. And she goes back strengthened again. It's not the story of a rugged individualist. It's the power of a group. So a pocket of resistance. I think a group also is, I think we should also think of it as a family on mission. One of the most common metaphors in the New Testament uh, for followers of Jesus is the metaphor of the family. We're the family of God. You say, well, I already have a family. I have a nuclear family. Yeah, most of us, or many of us do have a nuclear family. I do, right? But most of us, I'm just willing to bet this. Most of us, our nuclear families are just as individualistic as we are. Which means, I'm willing to bet that most of us do not share our spiritual struggles with our nuclear family. Perhaps we do not pray for each other in our nuclear family or gather around the word of God. I'm not saying that as a great indictment. I'm just saying this is a challenge for us as a church to be that for each other. I mean, it's also a challenge for you if you're the parent in the home, in your nuclear family. Some of you, if that bird has flown, your kids are too old or they're gone. No, I'm not... No condemnation. I scratch my head many days over how to disciple my kids. And I have, some, I have a long litany of failed experiments behind me. And a very few that worked. So I'm, this is not to cast judgment in any way. But where do we go where we share our struggles, pray for each other, and gather around the word? If you're a parent, and you can inject that into your family in any way, even a small way, I encourage you to do it. But what about so many of the rest of us? And let's be honest, many of us don't have the benefit of a, a full family. You know, we don't, our house, I talked about this two weeks ago, that we're seeing more and more people living on their own in our culture. So where do you have that family dynamic? It should be in the church. It should be in groups. We should be able to go uh, deeper into people's struggles and to care for them and to really hold them up. 
And it's, going, it's only going to increase this need in our culture. If people, and I really believe this is true, I think we're losing the blueprint in our culture on how to even just do normal family life. I think we're losing it. It's eroding bit by bit. And so you're going to see more families that are split up. You're going to see more people that are sort of like, they, they feel like splinters off of a family. And where do they fit? And how do they get welcomed in? I praise God. Last week when we could just celebrate Lisa Hogg's story. What an incredible win for us as a church. I wasn't there in those early days. I, what an incredible win for those of you who discipled her, who cared for her, who loved her. And, and what an incredible thing that we have an enduring relationship 25 years later. Huge blessing. Are you hungry for more of those stories? We might have to change. I think we will. I'm sure we will. A family on mission. We're going to have to go deeper. We're going to have to practice hospitality more. We might have to look at our, some of our communal brothers and sisters who came from communal cultures and say, uh, how do you do that? We might have to question the way we live. Maybe the American dream or the Canadian version of it is not really what we were supposed to live anyhow. Maybe a disciple really does stand out. Here's the last metaphor. For many years, we'd go camping as a family. And uh, one of our favorite things was to build the fire. You know, if you haven't built a fire for a while and you're sort of out of practice, it's actually a little tricky sometimes. I mean, unless you just bring gasoline or whatever. But, you know... Honestly, to build a fire, you know, from like little bits of, you know, fuzzy stuff and twigs and all the way up to, so you've got a big bonfire going, you know, there's a bit of art to it. And if you're not patient, you often have several false starts and, you know, or if you haven't brought anything, you know, that'll just, you know, something nuclear like gasoline. <laughs> so we were going camping probably two weeks out of every year as a family for many years. We had a, a 1979 Winnebago. And it was a great blessing in our lives, and we would, we would drive it everywhere. And every campsite we go to, people would look and go, that thing still runs? Anyhow, it was fun. But I learned how to build a new kind of fire. Not the teepee style where you sort of build all the different layers. It's just called the Swedish log. Anyone know, how to know what a Swedish log fire is? Okay, Swedish log is basically you take a, a, a length of log, get a nice flat one, and... Uh, you split it once into halves, and you split them into quarters. And then you take your four quarters, and you just assemble them just like it, back like it was. And you, you give about an inch or so, maybe an inch or an inch and a half between the, the sides of the logs. And what I would do is I would just go into the evergreen trees, and i just go down the ground, and i just grab handfuls of dry, um, like, needles. And i just fill the, the log, not all the way, but just a bunch of, you know, put a paper wick on the bottom, and then just put dry needles in there. Light that paper wick, 
And that thing was the most sustainable fire. Ridiculous. And because if you have a nice flat top on it, it's great. You can just grab your pan of bacon, just pop it on top, and you're ready to go. Simplest fire I ever made. So I just started making these Swedish log fires everywhere I went because it was a really easy to make. It heated up fast, and it sustained the heat for a long time so you could cook something on it. Simplest fire I've ever done. You can look it up on YouTube. There's lots of, lots and lots of videos on Swedish fires. Anyhow, why am I telling you that? I think a group is a fire that doesn't go well. It's a sustainable fire. So when you gather as a group, again, just like the logs, it's, it's the proximity. It's the closeness. What you, what you see in a Swedish fire is you see the fire leaping up one log and then transferring to the other log and, and back and forth because they're so close. They're heating each other up. Perfect proximity. And I think that's what God desires for us to experience in our groups together is a fire that doesn't go up. So when I take any step of discipleship and I do that in relationship where, I'm, where there's transparency, it has the ability to heat someone else up. And when you take any step of discipleship, so when you surrender, like, I mean, we surrender to God when we, we commit our lives to him at the beginning, but then we discover there's a whole bunch of little surrenders along the way that add, are added to that, right? We, we discover areas of our lives that we haven't surrendered yet. Or that God starts, and, and many times it's just that God, in his timing, finally taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, now it's time to deal with this area. When anyone in a group surrenders an area of their life to God, it heats up the whole group. When anyone takes a step of obedience to God in a group, it heats up the whole group. When anyone acts out of dependence on God in a group, it heats up the whole group. And that's what God's meant for us to experience. The power of one another, the power of being together, the power of coming together. And when we follow Jesus, even if you're not like teaching, you know, sometimes we think of discipleship as only just straight teaching. Teaching is definitely a part of it. But it's just testifying to the fact that I felt God nudging me in this area of my life. And I obeyed. When I hear that from somebody else, it spurs me on. It spurs me on. I suddenly go, oh, wow. That's a perfect picture. That's a great illustration. That's, that's just a challenging reminder that God has called me to a life of radical discipleship too. So this week, how can we apply this? I want to challenge you to join a life group. There's other types of groups here at the church. There's study groups. There's, uh, you know, people, there's Bible study groups, and there's, there's groups for different ages and stages and things like that. A life group is a great one. It follows the calendar year of our teaching. I challenge you to do that. But I, want you, I, ch I challenge you to get into some sort of group. So maybe if you're a university or college student, maybe you'll, you're going to try to find that pocket of resistance, those fellow Christians that you can gather on the campus together or gather in your dorm room or gather in your home and study the Word of God together. 
Pastor Chris Turnin, our youth pastor, he had a great uh, program that he did with uh, the teenagers in our church. He just said, you and two. Simple model. You go recruit two to form a group of three, and then you study, read the Bible together, and pray for each other, and just really try to figure out, you know, more about who God is, who I am in relationship to God, and what God wants me to do, and then just, you know, practice obeying him based on what you're reading the word. Very simple model. But I know it was a blessing to a lot of our students. In fact, uh, one of my sons was part of a group like that. It was a huge blessing in his life. So it could be just simple as you could, so you can start a group Or you can join a group. But what I would challenge you to do is any group that you're in, would you make it about the word? Would you center around the word? And, then, and would you encourage one another as much as you can? And would you be transparent? I know that it takes a little while sometimes to build that into a group. That's fine. Use the process. Get, get to that point where you're able to share. But we want to see the fire of our faith spread and burn hot and prevail against the coldness of a culture of unbelief. Would you stand with me? So maybe you're already in a group. Maybe you've been in a life group for a few years. I say the challenge for you is think about your group. Think about, Lord, how do you want me to go deeper in that? How do you want me to, how do you want my contribution to that group to heat up the group? Help me understand, Lord, what you want me to do there. If you're not in a group, then let's just be open. Lord, is there a group? Maybe even as we pray, He'll bring to your mind a group you could join or a way you could start a group, a discipleship group. Let's pray. Lord, you're our leader and you're our guide, and so we ask now that you'd guide us. Guide us to people. If that's what we need, is there certain people that, you need to, that you're nudging us towards? Guide us to practices if there's certain ways that we've been in, even when we're in a group, that have hindered um, us from really advancing spiritually and really advancing as disciples. Lord, guide us in our lifestyle. If there's ways that we we recognize um, we've hindered our own spiritual growth or we've hindered the spiritual growth of others by somehow we're holding back or sometime, somehow we're not, it's just not how you'd like it. I, we're open to your nudge, God. We're open to your prompting. We're open to your direction and guidance. You died for us and you call us to live for you. We simply want to do that. But we want to do it at the deepest level. We want to be transformed. We want to be formed into your image. We want it to be like you are living our lives through us. We want the hope that you offer to extend into the world. We want the faith that you give to be what we live in and not be encumbered by so many fears and so many distractions and so many other things that 
that beset us. We want to live in the freedom that you provide. We want to experience the life that's really life. We want to be on an adventure with you. So we just, we thank you that you said you're going you're gonna to act in us. You're the one who's there to will and to do. If we just say yes and become wide open to your agenda and lay aside our own. So we offer ourselves again. We surrender again. We say you can lead again and we will follow. Wherever you lead, we will follow. We say all these things in the name of Jesus under his authority and to his praise. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's worship.